0: Okay, October 26, 2022. I'd like to begin together with you, Morey Nebuchim. of course, is the philosophical work, the Treatise of Harambam. Harambam is a personality, a name that we're all familiar with. Harambam lived from 1138 to 1204. There's a little bit of dispute about that last number, his, his date of, of uh, his year of death, but that's... That's the general consensus. He uh, lived his life very briefly. He lived his life initially. He was born in Spain in Cordoba. He spent some time in Morocco, and much of his, call it professional life, and uh, much of his writings, and uh, as a physician uh, in in Egypt, and as a community leader, was uh, took place in Egypt. That was that was his last juncture of life. Um, he wrote this book specifically as somewhat of a letter, or somewhat as a guidance for one of his students. It's this Rabbi Yosef ben Yehuda, whom he describes in the introduction. That is uh, his book, More'i Nebuchim. It's got three halakim, three different uh, sections to it. And uh, what I'd like to, over the course of some time together with you, is develop many of the main themes um, that are discussed in More'i Nebuchim. To read More'i Nebuchim as a regular book, and what I mean by that is from chapter one through chapter, last chapter, is not the most easy um, approach. I, I find it very difficult to do so, because Harambama, as he describes in his introduction, purposefully wrote the book, not in that sort of direct fashion. So you'll need to, if you're going to develop the theme fully, you'll have to take a little bit from here and some from there. It's you know like the Torah, Divre Torah Anim b'Makom echad ve'ashirim b'Makom acher. You have to be able to appreciate the full picture. So we could do that in one of two ways. We could either spend 10 years making our way from the beginning until the end and over the course of time trying to jog our memory as to how he addressed this in the initial uh, discussion or alternatively, we'll read a chapter, we'll pause, reflect, understand what he states over there then segue to the chapter that might be uh, you know, 20, 30 later or more, and be able to piece those together, tie them together before moving onward. So that's really the direction I'm giving it to you. That's, that's what I was referring to, Sam, with regards to my direction in it. Um, what I'd like to specifically do is, first and foremost, allow for haram bam to speak. Uh, now, any, any author wants to be able to speak. Bam's words are very, are very edifying, are very significant in and of themselves. There is a particular difficulty in spending too much time on his words because these words are not his original words. His original words were in Arabic. Now, he wrote it in Arabic, but he wrote it in, in Hebrew letters, for one reason or another. But these are translations that you have in front of you of the Arabic. There are several translations to the Arabic. One of the more famous ones today is not the one you have in front of you. It's Rabbi Kapach, so that's the one that, uh, the white one you might be familiar with. That's, uh, that's published by Mossad Harav Kook. The later one, today, the more accepted from an academic standpoint is this one. It's known as the Schwartz edition. There are two volumes to it. It's published, um, It's published by from not one of the academic presses in Israel, University of Tel Aviv. And uh, again, it's a translation into Hebrew with uh, some significant footnotes uh, cross-referencing where some of the uh, scholarship with regards to Bam 's words can be found. But it's, in my mind, uh, the better uh, edition. Uh, does that mean I can prove to you it's better side than Kafach? I can't. I'm no expert in that respect. So you could use either, but the words we're going to be reading are from this. In terms of English translations, generally speaking, this is the only one. There are two, there are two halakim, two editions to this as well, two volumes to this as well. This is uh, Shlomo Pine's uh, translation, of, you know, Funny Colors, Old English, but very good translation. And in terms of being, uh, being allegiant to the words of the author, I mean, he really does it and you'll be able to tell, not that I know Arabic, but you'll be able to tell if you compare it to the Hebrew in front of you, you could tell that both of them seem to be on the same track with regards to being very allegiant to his words. Um, that's really the brief introduction with the technicalities. Does he do a lot of his books? Does he do a lot of his books in Arabic? Say it again. A lot of his perusha mishnayot was written in Arabic and his Moreh Nebuchim. It's to a certain extent, Mishneh Torah, his Halakha work, is an anomaly that it's written in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, his Mishneh Torah, which is written in Hebrew, he had a particular, Professor Tashma discussed it, he had a particular direction in, in mind. He wanted to take... Talmud and reincorporated into his book, Mishneh Torah. So he needed to use Talmudic wording, he needed to use similar phrases, so he had to do it in Hebrew. Um, but uh, that's, that's with regards to his writing, and with regards to uh, much of you know, Moreh Nebuchim's general uh, scope. Uh, I'm not going to, for reasons that we'll address later on, not going to read together with you the entire hakdamah, the entire introduction to the book. I'll read to you briefly the end of it, Uh, But suffice it to say that Rambam has, in his introduction, he maps out Although he describes the proper methodology of studying anything and studying this book and points out very clearly, it's a point that we'll return to on many occasions, that there is in anything that you learn, anything that you study, there are several levels and tiers within which you can develop and understand the intent of the author. You can derive uh, understanding from it on many different levels. You can read it on its most coarse and base level, and then you can delve further. And he says this is a book which is filled with all sorts of riddles that you'll have to pay. A careful attention to, he expects the reader, that's clear, uh, to be well versed in Tanakh and Talmud and Midrash Hazar. That's a tall task for each of us, but we'll do our best. But that's his expectancy, which means to say, if he's alluding to something or maybe using a similar wording or something of that sort, to roll your eyes and say, I'm not so certain that's what he meant. This is written for the layperson. It wasn't written for the layperson, it was very clearly and specifically written for the scholarly elite. Or you say, but more nibuchim means to give direction to those who are confused. Even scholarly elite can be confused, and his student writing to him and he explaining matters to him is expecting that you're going to delve into this and look up his sources and try to cross-reference what he's referring to and ask questions as to his omission or why he threw in a line here or an extra word over there that's all very clearly what he tells you to do in this book ironically uh, the rabbis and the yeshivot do that all the time in his Mishneh Torah. There's never a word that goes ignored in a true uh, academy of Torah, true yeshiva with regards to Bam's words in Mishneh Torah where he doesn't tell you that's his intent. Moreh he very clearly tells you that you should be I, I would I would propose that he means it in all, but he very clearly says it over here. Now, in the introduction to Moreh he does say that two of the main things that he's going to do, it might catch you off guard, because you understand, if you've never learned the Moreh, we're about to step into a world of Jewish philosophy that's, that's famous, that's majestic, and it's, uh, in its, uh, in its over, overbearing, so it's got to have some sort of grand vision. He says, you know, I have two basic, uh, two basic objectives. One is to determine and to explain to you words that are mentioned in Tanakh. There are many words in the prophetic texts of the Torah that people misinterpret. That's what I want to do over the course of this book. So it's not exegesis, it's not, inter- it's not a Perush al-ha-Torah, he's not writing a perusha al torah but he says, that's effectively what I want to do. I just want to explain to you words. Words in, uh, in the Torah, which are misinterpreted, are going to lead you to wrongful philosophical notions, That's first and foremost what I want to do. Furthermore, ironically, he says, I want to explain to you passages in the Torah that are taken too literally, and I want to teach you the underlying message, and I want you to understand it from an allegorical perspective as well. Those are really his two objectives, and you'll very quickly understand from even just the first two pirakim, which I don't even know if we'll finish today, how he really, from the onset, jumps right into that. He opens up the book, and it's like a discussion of etymology. It's a discussion of words, uh, really? I was expecting us to take off on some sort of, of um, intellectual spaceship, and now you're just a nitty gritty on words. And what does this mean? And how you compare it to that? But that's the fundamentals, those are the building blocks. From which everything comes out. He concludes his pitiha, <laughs> He concludes his hakdamah. <laughs> he writes <laughs> after I gave these introductions. Atchila zkirat hashemot ashe yesh al amitat mashmautam ha mechuvenet. I don't have it in front of you. I'm sorry. makom <laughs> The first thing I want to do is I want to pay attention to words and to explain to you the names that are given to different matters and their true meaning. Al <laughs> hadavar the purpose for me explaining to you words, for me having this conversation with you about words, you should know, even though he in no way intentioned it, he's dealing with Aristotelian philosophy and trying to jive it with Torah or to understand where it doesn't jive with Torah. In today's day and age, in terms of contemporary philosophy, words is what it's all about. I mean, words and and, and how words construct and constructs are what, uh, what, what make reality and determine truths and so forth. That's what it's all about. So, He's kind of ahead of his time in that respect, but he's not doing it in the same way, although the focus on words and the purpose of words is very much his intent. And his specific description as he says, this will be the key for you to open up those closed gates. That's his imagery. It's interesting because immediately after that, you have then, I don't have this in front of you either, but you will soon in due time, you have then like the opening page to the book. So the opening page to the book, which... I think they call it a superscript, when he cites a pasuk. He does this in his Mishneh Torah as well. At the beginning of each book, he cites a pasuk. My, famous in that, my, my, my favorite in that context is his introduction to Sefer Ahava, his Mishneh Torah, has 14 uh, halakim. Sefer Ahava starts with the pasuk, Ma'ahavti Torah techa kol hayom hi That's It's a beautiful pasuk, but it seemingly has nothing to do with the book of Ahava. It has the word Ahava in it, but it's talking about Torah, Torah lands itself in the first uh, book, in the first section of Mishneh Torah, and Sefer Hamada. Uh, there's something very purposeful, which I've on more than one occasion discussed. But over here as well, he starts with a pasuk, so he quotes a pasuk. The pasuk says, Pit, it's pasuk from Sefer Yeshayah, Pithu open the gates, the Avogoy Sadiq, I, I guess the nation of righteous, will come, shomer emunim, those who safeguard emunah, those who safeguard proper thought. Uh, So already the imagery, and again, I'm telling you, what's that? Pasuk is, pithu she'arim v'yavu go'i sadiq shomer emunim. The imagery that the pasuk already evokes is very much a continu- continuation of what you read at the end of the introduction. It says at the end of the introduction, I'm going to give you the keys to open those gates which are closed. So it's a beautiful segue. It's no surprise then that he opens the book with that pasuk. There is a book by Marvin Fox. Marvin Fox was a, an eminent uh, Maimonidean scholar and he has a, a good 30-40 pages that he dedicates to the first two chapters of Moreh Nebuchadnezzar. And he says if you were to do this right, you write full books as a perush to the moreh, that would be accessible to all, to dealing with every word and every concept and so forth. He doesn't do it in his life, but he wrote prolifically about Harambam and the moreh, and he suggests something further than that, you know, base level interpretation. He says, as I mentioned a few moments ago, Harambam expects us to know Talmud. He expects us to be aware at the very least of the well-known statements in Talmud. The Gemara Masechet Shabbat and Afkof Yotet, just last week in Masechet Sanhedrin, in the last chapter, there's an identical statement, has a statement, I think it's of Resh Lakish, that any person who says Amen has this haftaha, uh, this promise of Olam Haba. What's the pasuk from which he derives this Amen? Well, it's this pasuk, Pithu she'arim v'yavok go'y sadiq shomer emunim. Don't read it as emunim, but rather as amenim. So suggests Marvin Fox. He says, well, maybe that's what Hanan Bam is kind of alluding to already. To focus on this Pasuk and to understand it. Now I'm injecting my words, uh, You know, I'm, I'm, I'm elaborating, I'm embellishing. To understand it at base level, Talmud is, all right, you say Amen, Alam Haba, fantastic. All right, we, we give the rabbis, I think, a little bit more credit than that. We accept that they understood the complexities of life and what it means to really achieve in terms of our uh, our merit and our legacy beyond just saying Amen in the course level. The Gemara, in fact, says, what is it uh, that Amen symbolizes? The Gemara says, because it's Kel Melech Ne'eman, it speaks to them." that ne'emanut that you have and you pronounce about God. Uh, perhaps, he says, what he's already describing at the, at the onset of the book, haram bamis, is I'm going to give you the segue and the understanding of what amen is, of what it means to uh, substantiate and give you a stamp of approval to the name of God and blessing of God. Over the course of this book, we're going to discuss who God is, what divinity represents, but you'll be able to, in a proper, you know, a symbolic, but even fis- in a even literal sense, say amen and actually understand it, and in turn merit, well, this, uh, this enigmatic olam haba. So already his references, maybe several tiered, just in terms of the superscript to the book. All right, with that introduction, Harambam begins. And again, maybe I even built it further that you should be expecting the world from these first few lines. He's going to open up, we're excited, and he opens up with two words, Tzelem Udmut. That's the opening words of the book. Tzelem Udmut are words that we're familiar with, what are those the words, you know, that you're going to open your philosophical treaties? The one that we're going to forever remember and pronounce is one of the mean? greatest? Well, that's what the whole chapter is about. What do those words mean? Where do those de- words derive from in terms of Torah? Well, they are in Bereshit, Perek Aleph, in Pasuk dav and Pasuk Kafzayim. Initially, God says, I'm reading from Pasuk before we read from Harambam. Na'aseh Adam b'salmenu kidmutenu." There it is. God says, we will make a human being what do those words mean? It seems to be likening human beings to God. Salem and demut. We don't know what those words And then Pasuk of course, it describes what human beings mandate and responsibilities. So Kav God indeed creates human beings. So indeed we are, or he was created, B'Tzelem. What is Tzelem? That's already dangerous in the eyes of Bam and maybe in the eyes of some of us, to liken human beings to God To understand that in some corporeal way, in terms of physicality of God, after all, we are physical. That's already a dangerous statement. It's already scary to wrap your head around. I will tell you, it's not so crazy that he opens his book with these words. This is, to the best of my knowledge, this is the first reference of anything with regards to the essence of God. We have at no point talked about God all that much. We talked about Ruach Elohim haifat Al I'm at the onset of Sefer Bereshit, but didn't really talk about God. Ironically, the first reference of "quote who God is" is through human beings. So you're going to open your book in which you're going to talk about God a lot. So yeah, you'll have to talk about the first reference in the Torah to God, and then furthermore realize there are particular dangers in these first words. Selim and Demut might inappropriately be co- uh, translated as uh, some sort of being which has physicality. That, of course, will will will, propo- will, will set forth. A, a very grave danger in the eyes of Harambam. Okay, so here he goes. Ha'anashim savru. He says, the people believed. She'zelem belashon ha'ivrit more al tavnit davar shelo. He says, people believed that the word salem, again, Ali, what does it mean? He says, some people believe. It refers to the tavnit, as the shape, and mit'ar is like the configuration. Of course, both referring to physical attributes and descriptions. If that's what those words mean, if that's what the word Selem means, we're already, uh, certainly in our traditional understanding of God, we're already in a difficult place. Now, the first description in the Torah is likening him to, or describing him as having some physical appearance or essence, Zehevila vila hagshama, that brought to hagshama, Hagshama is a corporeality that's the uh, finding physicality in God that's a problem gimurah devarav Lakshama gimura devarav that brought people in turn to envision God as having physicality because of the words that he uses in the Torah naaseh adam besel menukid Again, it's not so far off for the person to make this mistake. After all, the pasuk does say human beings are a bit... Size. It doesn't just say I have a tzelemu Now The pasuk in the Torah says we'll make human beings in our tzelem and our demut. Whatever it means, you look at a human... I'm looking at all of you. You're all physical. So it's already leading me to believe that something about this might be physical. Hem savru, those wrong-thinking people believed or understood, shehakel hu besurat adam, that God has the uh, has the uh, su- has the uh, surah has the shape has the figure the form of human beings. again his shape and his configuration umikan shape and configuration. I took from the English translation full disclosure umikan lahakshama and this caused them to uh, to bring themselves to an absolute understanding of. Physical nature in God. So much so that people believed, maybe even believed, that if you were to abandon such a thought to not accept the physical side of God, you'll be negating the Pasuk and the Torah. That's dangerous. I do remember, and I understand the, the problem with this as well, and it's not the issue for our class now, although it will be at some <laughs> point, uh, reading a book, uh, it was not even a philosophical book at all, but it was kind of just matter-of-factly pointing out that the Jews, or others, uh, got it wrong with regards to God's creation. God's creation of ex nihilo, of beria, yesh <laughs> ayin it's just negated from the second pasuk in the Torah, the second pasuk in the Torah says, ve'ha'aretz, hayetah vavoh, Again, if you read it like that and you want to be uh, serious about the text, you want to be serious about what what it's telling you, it does describe the land being in its most simple sense. Toh vavoh. There was something, it sounds like, before God's creation. There is a danger in it. Again, it's the second pasuk in the Torah. You look not so much further for another danger. I have a student in a, uh, a high-ranking university who called me last week, not nervous, but describing to me his class in whatever the subject is, where the professor took a, uh, a parenthetic uh, moment to point out that if a person is honest with the Old Testament, it's clear that it was never purposed to be, if you read it sensitively, speaking about the oneness of God, because this pasuk says na'aseh in the plural. Of course, without accepting a traditional rabbinic interpretation, it does sound that way. So I guess that Rambam opens the book and again, these are all in chapter 1. These are all in Peric Aleph of the Torah. There are explicit difficulties in the text with regards to traditional beliefs and understandings or at the very least proper ones. It says, They believed if they move away from this and they'll bring to Ephesus, they'll negate, they'll, bring, uh, they'll do away with a true God if they don't accept or conceive of God as having a body and uh, a face and a hand, just like you and me. What they did believe is, okay, he's got all that stuff, but he's greater, he's grander. And he shines more, or he has a, a greater radiance. That's that's this uh, that's the understanding. They furthermore, in terms of explaining why is he, why is God different than us? Well, he doesn't have the regular blood and flesh, but he's God body. He's just grander. It's a different-natured body. This was, in their vision, the furthest you can go with regards to distancing God from them. Again, the idea of distancing God from you is talking about his greatness. He's so great, he's so different, he's so unique, whatever word you want to put to that, none of them will suffice, that I would say that we will say he doesn't have any physicality. They also, they, you know, the quote-unquote, they want to argue something along those lines. They want to be a to the text, though. So what they'll say is he does have a body but. It's qualitatively different. It's not regular blood. It's not regular flesh. It's not the same strength and the same stature and so on and so forth. And his radiance is so much greater. That's how they'll distance God in their vision of allegiance to the Torah. Ulam, sheye Amer Hagashmut Amitit Ashe Ella Amitut Hagashmut. He says, What is proper and appropriate to be said in order to be sholel, to negate this idea of gashmut, of giving this uh, a physical aside or conception of God, and to establish the ahdut, the unity, the oneness, the truthful one. The only way you'll properly conceive of God is by distancing and erasing any physical idea to demonstrate that, philosophically and logically, My philosophical proofs, my demonstrations. We'll deal with that later. Right now, I just want to deal with empirical data. I want to deal with what the Pesuchim and the Torah say. Um, so I, I'm not, I'm not going to deal yet with the philosophical side of this. I'm not going to deal yet with my proofs. However, Kan Perik And what I want to do in this Perik is to define those words in the Torah. Zeh Omar I will tell you. Ki He says, if you want to find the word that describes the physical appearance, the complexion of a being in the Torah, it is toar. It's not Selem and it's not Demut. You'll find this word toar when we describe the appearance of someone. For example, yefe toar vife mare talks about the beauty of Yosef. I'll deal with one or two of these in a moment, but he says, You'll never find the word toar in conjunction with God. That would be inappropriate that would be wrong that would be false because the word toar is a description of physical appearance he says not only with regards to natural nature of a natural part of a, of a person's personality and being which is those first several Pisukim, but even when it's talking about melachutit melachutit means artificial even when something was constructed by human beings this is that pasuk that he cites from yeshayahu yetaarehu besered that you'll give the Form with sered. Sered some sort of stylus, some sort of writing instrument. Or with a compass, you'll bring forth the form. So again, the word toar is either in the natural form or in the artificial form, but it describes form. ilu. that's in contrast to the word selem. that refers to the natural form. ha'inyan the word Selem describes the essence of a matter. It describes what it is. Not its physical appearance, not what it appears to be, but what it is. He says, by a human being, this will come to fruition. This will be realized through HaHasaga HaEnoshit through the human apprehension, the human understanding, our mind, who we are as intellectual beings, that will be our essence. It's because of this intellectual hasagah capability that we have that the Torah describes us as having Salem Elokim. Salem Elokim, then, is a higher-level consciousness. It's a higher-level intellect. That's what it describes. Consciousness and intellect cannot be touched, cannot be pointed to, cannot be uh, described in any physical sense. That's what the word means. It says the Pasuk in Tehillim describes Bizayon. Uh, bizayon is contempt what you're describing over there is when you want to shame another person, when you want to, be, uh, to, to to bring forth contempt to them, you're not talking per se, you could talk about their physical appearance, but you really want to shame them, you really want to put them down, you're talking about their nefesh, you're talking about their essence, you're talking about who they are. So he says the pasuk then talks about selim in the context of contempt. Because you're not talking about physical appearances, the facade, the artificial side, surat minha <inaudible> that's the true form of human beings. And <inaudible> not describing their limbs or their form or their shape or that that sort of matter. So what he ostens, what he essentially did in his opening several paragraphs was number one, he told us that the word we would not attribute to God is toar. Towards is the physical appearance, back to the way he began. He says, so what is Tzelem? What is Demut? Well, first and foremost, Zelem refers to the essence, the true form, which he describes in human beings as the intellectual capacity. He says, to have the true form of God means we have an intellectual capacity. Ach, im en manos, <laughs> excuse me, ke'mochen omer ani, that the idols, the pessilim, they create slams. He says that if they want to have sex with them, they he suggests, and he's aware, that we use the word "selem" for idols in the Torah. Idols certainly pure physical. The worship of idols, we generally speaking say, is wrongful because they're physical, and God is not physical, so he's struggling with that now. He says, but the reason we describe them as Salem, he suggests, is because the worship of them is not, excuse me, the worship of them. My wife did point out that I talk about worships instead of talking about worshiping. All right, I, everyone has problems with this, certainly me. Anyway, the worship of them, to say it properly, is in the in the respect that you're, you're wrong Wrongfully directing your attention to a being which is wrong—it's not so much the physical rep- re- misrepresentation, but that's true as well. But you furthermore are directing them to an other essence. That's his suggestion for why they're known as tzelem. Again, in his words, he shema shiratul what people wanted to achieve. Through worship of idols, it's the meaning that with their logic they attributed to this. He suggests, and the truth is he does elaborate in all places in Mishneh Torah, in his Ilkhot Abu Dazara, on the initial stages of idolatry, of idol worship and paganism. And he does conceive of it in such a fashion. He believes and he describes that the way Abu Zarah began is not so much attributing to the silamim in essence in and of themselves, but it's wrongfully associating that intermediary as a way to get to. But again, the description then of Tzelim, he says, is... It's appropriate. You call it atzelim because it describes the wrongful understanding of essence. Okay, Enze Omerani al This is a pasuk in Sefer Shemuel which describes Abu I think Tehorchem is hemorrhoids of some sort. So it's talking about the tzlamim that are hemorrhoidish. Uh, what does that mean? He says <laughs> It's not that they were constructed as Tehorim. It's rather that they were in some way, shape or form associated with Tehorim. Uh, so that's his initial description. Again, why is he doing this? As an apologetic, he's doing this. He says, now that I told you tselim, that word, that uh, describes, now lest, by the way, lest you be, your eyes be glazing over now because he's so in the weeds on these words, he will emerge from these weeds. He just needs to get you through these weeds to get up to the fundamentals because if you, if you aren't strong in terms of the empirical evidence, so anything you're building afterwards is not a very, very solid uh, structure. So he says, uh, there as well, he suggests, the reference is not so much to what they looked like, it's rather to what they were associated with. And now he catches himself, and he suggests, maybe I'm going too far with the word Salem. Maybe the word Salem, generally speaking, does refer to the essence. When we talk about a Salem as an idol, maybe over there it means something else. Maybe by an idol it actually refers to its structure. Gasp, that's ridiculous, that's terrible. So in this next paragraph he apologizes a little bit more. He says, ach, he says, if, you, if, I, if I really can't lead you out of, of conceiving and understanding this tzelem as referring back to the essence of something, but it really is a reference to something physical, shem he says, well, then maybe this word Salem, and he's leading us up with that word Shem Meshutaf, to something he'll talk about in Perik Bet, I'll tell you about it already now. The word Shem Meshutaf, he says, it's an equivocal term. It's a term which could go in one of two ways. Either the word Salim is a reference to the essence of something, which, of course, is what he's going to tell us, and is referring to, or maybe sometimes... It has another meaning. We know that from English. We know words that have more than one meaning. In Perek Bet, he'll, for example, at the very onset, say there's a word in the Torah, Elohim, or Elohim. What does that word mean? So he says, well, it depends context. Sometimes it's a reference to God. In Bereshit Perek Aleph, it's a reference to God. Sometimes it's a reference, we know from Parashat Mishpatim, to Bedin. Sometimes it's a reference to angels. Sometimes it's a reference to just important people. Uh, Which one is it? Oh, it's a Mishutah. Shem Meshutah. Context usually will determine that for you. I mean, like anything else. It's a word, and the question is how it's being used. So he wanted this to be an absolute, that the word selim initially only has one meaning. And I said, maybe it has two meanings, but I'll tell you this much. A, I'm going to prove later on that you cannot give physicality to God. B, I'm going to tell you that from many other sources, the word Salem need not mean physicality. So at the very least, it has one of two meanings. And over here, in salmenu kit mutenu, it's not referring to the physical one. But that's, that's the way it's going to be, just that's like... Just certainly but he'll he'll set out a to prove his opinion philosophically and logically and b you're right he can't prove it per se on the word salem he'll try to do it on the word demut furthermore and at the very least at the very least you turn to the other side and you say that's just your opinion. In other words, you turn to the other side and you say you don't have empirical evidence about the existence of God as a physical form, right? In other words, at the very least, you've accomplished that, but he probably did even more than that. And so he says if that's the case, it's a Shemishutav, according to that, and as a result, when it says, it's not a reference to a physical side of matters, it's rather to those are his Words Surat mean the true form and essence of a being, and that's the intellectual side question. Yeah, but you know we have different words in English, and they mean different things. Sure. Their their essence is the same. It, it, they're opposed. you the hope, so you're me. It's Again. Concern, I concern. already gave you Elohim, right? And and you you are okay. okay. Also, I understand what you're saying. No, but I understand what you're saying. Anyway, I don't have a problem with that because I, I can tell you this much: there is something similar. You're talking about the form. The true form or the physical form? Right. They're both form. Right. 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 So I have no problem. No, I have no problem. Elokim all denotes strength. All those things I mentioned are all strength. They're all very different, really very different one from the other, but they all denote strength. Over here, it all denotes form. There's no problem with that. Very different forms. Right. But they're, but they're pulling from form. They're, both, they're both pulling from form. Is it a physical form or is it a form of essence? Yeah, but even though they're pulling from form, the definition, of each negate the other. Oh, certainly. But so does Elohim either being God or being a mayor. So does Elohim either being an angel or being, I don't know, uh, a judge. uh, It's not the same. It's not going to be the same. They're very different one from the other, and you'll define things altogether differently. Over here, he says, at the very least, I can tell you, I can comfortably state that this pasuk poses no challenge. I think you can go further, he says, and it actually reads very smoothly. At the very least, it poses no challenge. You're right, it's equivocal. It's it can left. go either way. You like can have a, a far right and far left. I would have been feeling hatred, feeling love, right? It's it's, it's that kind of word. That's it. Hei lecha efo. We have at the very least clarified for you. a del ben selim v'toar. We described the difference between Salem and To'ar. To'ar is the word we don't associate with God. Salem is the word we may associate with God. And we furthermore gave the meaning and what, what we mean when we say the word Salem. Lastly, he said, I started the chapter with two words. I need to tell you what Demut is. Demut, le'umat zot, hu min or dama. The word Demut is milashon dome to be like. That's a word, demut. Demut is not describing form, it's rather something that is like. mufshat. It'll furthermore describe something that is similar in abstract, in abstract realms. Shared devarav lik'at midbar. For example, the Pasuk says in Tehillim, I'm similar to the pelican of the, of the midbar, of the wilderness. Uh, that's not saying that uh, I or you are ever actually like a pelican. At no point, if I say to you, uh, "I was hungry as an elephant," you don't, I hope, imagine that I have a, a long nose at that time when I was hungry, or if I'm hungry right now and I'm growing several tons of uh, of, of flesh. that's not what it means. It's not with knafeh it's, it's, it's not with the wings and and feathers. Ela. You imagine the pelican as having some sort of sorrow, maybe based on the way it cries out, and so too is a description. So the word demut need not describe, says, and actually doesn't describe when you have a simile, when you have something that describes something as being similar to the other. It doesn't mean in the physical sense, it means in the abstract sense. I am at, as that. It doesn't mean I look like that. It doesn't mean that I appear like that. It means that some way we are abstractly similar. Kemokhin, ko, similarly, kol'itz. Question? Yeah, why wouldn't you say it's similar means It's a qualifier. Meaning if I'm going to use God as the example in terms of, of sailing, and i want going to get into away from Todd, he would be the qualifier of that sailing. That's exactly how he's going. It's Betsalmen and are basically synonymous for him. It's basically it's basically reading them in conjunction. That's right. That that's exactly how he's going. The pasuk describes uh, not all the trees being as beautiful as it or not being as similar to it in terms of beauty. It's describing. A similarity in beauty. Um, the pasuk says, kidmut hamat nahash, The venom, your venom is like the venom of a of a serpent. We're not, I assume, imagining actual venom in human beings. The pasuk says that uh, it was like a, uh, a a lion who was eager to tear apart. All of these pesukim when you use the word demut or the shorish dalid mem he damut similarity Generally speaking, on abstract matters, lo betavnitu You're not describing similarity or any identical features with regards to physical, coarse, artificial essence. Kenemar. Similarly, the pasuk says demut hakiseh or demut kiseh describes the. Uh, it describes the throne of, of Hakadosh Baruch Hu. And uh, when it talks about Demut, well, what does that describe? Haddamiuti beinian harromemut, vehasegiv, saying that it's uh, uh, lofty and it's grand like the kiseh. we're not describing that he actually has a chair. We're not describing an actual chair. Lo biyoto miruba' ve'ava' We're not describing it being a square or thick. Lo beorech raglav. We're not describing how tall its actual legs are. Ka'asheh hoshvim ha'aluvim like those who are uh, the the wretched uh, believe. V'chen demut ha'yot, and similarly the demut, the likeness of the creations. So again, each of these, uh, Rambam, Says, uh, points us in the same direction that Salem did. We're not describing physical attributes, we're not describing physical similarities to God. And since human beings are imbued with something unique, it doesn't exist in any of the other creations under the moon that's the intellectual capacity, that's the higher level consciousness. It's not our feelings, it's not our limbs, it's not anything physical that, uh, that uh, activates it. Chuch feelings. Uh, excuse me, senses, excuse me, senses. The the senses. He says, since our intellect is in no way connected to physical, and you can't liken it to anything under the moon. Uh, So for that reason, the Torah says that human beings will be created like God, like God in the respect that, they have something that nothing else has. It's the greatest similarity in terms of the abstract sense you can give. It's not actually, we're not actually similar to God. Rather, at first glance, we have a similarity to him. This is for this reason that we're described as being created and crafted in that Likeness of God. All right, that's what he did over the course of Perik Alv. There are several points that need to be made even before addressing Perik Bet. The question is with regards to humanity, it's not a question for the local conversation, but it will be as we expand the conversation of Haram Bam from Perik Bet outward. After the creation of Adam and, well, Ishve Isha over here, Zacharun um, Nekeva, what about the children of Adam and Hada? you have Cain, you have Hevel, and you have no mention of them being birthed, them being born with any tzele melokim. There's it's actually a, a, an, an implicit omission. There's an, the Torah never mentions that. You do have those words or one of those words reappear. It's in Pereke Pasuk As we're kind of capping uh, the story of Adam and Chava, the Pasuk says, Adam, umat shana, it's 130 years old, Vayoled bidmuto he then birthed someone with his demut and selim. It's the third child of Adam who has that selim and demut of Adam, whom we know is the selimu demut of Elohim. It means that those first two children seemingly don't have that. It's for that reason Rambam elsewhere in the More will point to a traditions amongst the rabbis, both earlier and later, that those first two children, now don't take this wrongfully, but those first two children, Kain and Hevel, and anyone else who was born, the words of the rabbis are, were like Shedim. They were like demons, they were like uh, beings who didn't have this Salem Elokim Is Rambam's interpretation. Again, that Tselem Elokim, if we pay attention, you, ne- you don't even need Moren Nebuchim to notice this, but I'm already planting this to realize there's something going on in the text of the Torah with regards to this Tselem Elokim that exists later on with sheit, but didn't necessarily with Cain and Hevel, and the Chachamim are already tapping into that. And for so that reason, they're likening the first two to a sheit. A sheit being some sort of... Being who's missing the higher level consciousness, but that's Perik Aleph. So Perik Aleph sets the ground for what he now wants to address, seemingly, because Perik Beit now brings us into Gan Eden. So we describe the essence of God to a certain extent. At the very least, we negated any physicality from God. That much we established. Uh, certainly. Oh, no question. Uh, Neanderthals and cavemen and so on and so forth, it's all now readily understandable to the extent that Adam Harishon, I'm very careful in the way I'm wording this, is the first being with Salem elokim? That's clear. Even after him, not all had Salem Elohim. That's very clear and very purposeful in the words of the Torah and Rambam later on as well. Yes, Abe? and Abel appear after Ganun. Kayan and Hevel appear. The Perakim. Well, I'll, I'll, that is the Gemara in Mas. That is the Gemara. One second. That is the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin. Here's what the Pesukim in the Torah. I'm not sure where we're going even with this, but I'll just help you with the Pesukim first. You have banishment of Adam and Hava from Gan Eden. There's no reference to births of children, birth of children. In Perak Dalit the first pasuk says, yada it Chava Ishto." Sounds like the birth of the children, Matava Torah Kayin, is afterwards. Now, truth be told, the Gemara and Sanhedrin that you cited, and Rashi, as a result, says, V'hadam yada, k'var kodem ha'idyan shel ma'ala." V'hadam yada is past tense. It's presented over here, but it's really referring to what took place earlier. There's plenty to be said about this. Keep in mind, uh, what does that tell us with regards to the birth? Was the birth during a time of quote, while well, you're allegiant to God, or is it only after betrayal of God? But what I'm saying is that Pesukim is somewhat equivocal. Ibn Ezra reads it as taking place afterwards against the Gemara, against Rashi. Zohar, much of the mystical sources as well, read a kipshuto and they read it as this happened afterwards. There's much to be said, but why are you asking? Just take it. No, I just want to see maybe we differentiate uh, Salim because look, there were only two kids ever would be born you know, in right. Now keep in mind, it's only Kayin, it seems. The Gemara has all, but maybe according to Rashi, I'm not fully clear, but uh, quite the opposite. Wouldn't you imagine the opposite would be true? If they're the ones born in the Gan, wouldn't you imagine they would have? Okay, all right, so just keep that for a later time, that sort of information. That's all right. Does that mean that Sem El is subjective? In terms of who gets gets down to, how control order. That's a very important question. Keep in mind, you're touching, I mean, there's, there's no simple answer, but what, what will be, and I could start you on a theory already at this point, what will emerge seemingly in the Torah is that Humanity seems to go when God realizes, hu basar, when He realizes that Lev HaAdam is Kol seems to tell us that either they're not maximizing this Tzelim or they're not living with a Tzalem, and He then wipes all out and leaves the Matzah Be'inav, the Noah. Uh, So it's not fully clear exactly what's taking place with regards to that. And furthermore, uh, does that mean that there's a direct, in other words, there's only specific individuals until some point uh, where it then spreads further? Not clear either. Someone like Kuzari, Rabbi Udahalevi talks about this enigmatic uh, Inyan eloki. He talks about this we'll call it Tzelem Elohim for our purposes. It talks about Zinyan which he has a direct line for all the important people in the Torah. You know, that's what it, it, it will also give you certain vision, and understanding with regards, I had a conversation with someone about this earlier today, um, Yitzhak and Yishmael. Yishmael is kind of out of it. He's coming from Hagar, outside of the clan. Uh, each one of the Avot want to marry inside of it. Maybe they're focused on this Tzelem Elohim and Yitzhak is the easier heir in that respect. It's harder than afterwards, with regards to Yaakov and Esav, because they're both from within, and to discern which one is and which one's not, is not all that simple. So what I'm saying is, I don't think we have a simple answer, I don't think we'll have a simple answer from this, but but you certainly want to be thinking along those lines. Go ahead. You have to have the alternative. So if you have the alternative, then you have consciousness. So it can't be that the is only by default. I agree with you, unless we as a people at that time through, um, through uh, the environment that we created for ourselves, through, uh, call it crossbreeding crossbreeding with whatever non salem Elohim beings, and you want to talk about it genetically and biologically, whatever it is, what I'm saying is maybe they did lead themselves to a place where there was no longer higher-level consciousness. That's what I'm suggesting. I'm not, I'm not certain about it. I, it's certainly a thought in that context that, that, yes, it was there and it was apparent, but then God says, I mean, keep in mind as well, how often... And the answer is never. Do you find destruction of all of humanity? And why would that be necessary? Why not just redirect it? Unless Selem Elokim had vanished, aside from one, or aside from one family, uh, perhaps. Isn't it, it's all pulling from you know Elokim? Right, everything's pulling from there. So how can you say that one person has the Selem Elohim and one doesn't? It's all coming from one source. Uh, it's, it's an important question, uh, and uh, I, I'll, have to, I'll have to hold it for when Rambam himself alludes to this. Well, right now I'm just telling you Pisokim in the Torah. The question is a strong one, the question is a strong one. If Adam is now the bearer of Tzelem Elohim, however the creation of his children is now coming about, so you ask why would some have, why would some not? That's what Richie's uh, tapping into, is this some sort of subjective thing? All right. I, I understand but does this right. also, but also the, the, there should be everybody, everything no but the, the physical is genetic the soul is not genetic so if if the father understood. has a very special soul the son is not going to have that soul understood so the question, that, question is when it does and does when it doesn't it? It. Well, when, when is it passed on when is it not well, that's the question I think the soul is never passed on well to Cain and Hevel it was and to Sheth it was somehow right that's what the Pasuk is telling you through actions, maybe you get an upgrade. Doesn't it's sound like it. The Pasuk says that he gives birth to. Vayoled bidmuto or, Kitzalmo. The Pasuk says he births him like that. It's not that he grows this soul or um, whatever this, you know, it's that he's born with it. Nice. Yes, and exactly. yes, and the fact that those are flipped is significant as well. It should be noted as well, just as a point for reflection as well. Uh, Rambam in, does not reference this pasuk in our perech, which is halodavaru. it's the perech in which he says, I'm going to talk about tzelem and demut, and left out one of the three pasukim, Parashat pereshit, with regards to that, yeah, that that needs to be noted as well. Makes sense so you still have the same genes. So of course you feel they going to have the same exacts until you get... But Kayin and Hevel don't, don't forget. Hevel. Right. Seemingly. Yes, Ricky. There are other people who are in Hanath where it doesn't say that it was Moab, That's, and that's correct. And there's that clearly says after the uh, webbers and Geshev from Noah that says, oh, and now all of their kids and all of their lineage now have the that's, that's what makes so if this... I don't think so. If I'm telling you about a family and I say, well, the first two were born. The third one was beautiful. And then I say, "And this family, there were three children born. And you go and you check those three children, the second family, they're all beautiful. Uh, again, define beautiful however you'd like. Uh, so the first family said, well, the fact that he said about one need not mean that the others... Yes, it does. If I was telling you in the context of this family line and this lineage, one of them has the beauty, and I didn't mention about the other two, I'm, I'm kind of just signifying that the other two don't have it. So the fact that later on it's no longer mentioned, okay, that's... So the that's. the first people who had it had it, and they were beautiful. But Sheet is one of those first people. And he's described as having it, and kind and evil or not. All right, again, I'm only mentioning this now, for this being future conversation, which is necessary. No, I'd rather you not. I'd rather you not. Right, let's at the very least begin Perek Bet over here just very briefly, at the very least with the question uh, that was posed and to try to understand how it came about, even though we won't fully. And so Perek Bet begins in a very unique fashion, to the best of my knowledge, the only place in the Moreh that he starts with, a question that was posed from another. Ishmaelumad, he says, sha alai, shanim kushya mufla'an. There was a wonder, wonderful, a wondrous question, which was posed to me from an Ishmaelumad from a learned man. it's important, it's, it's praiseworthy, uh, to, or, or it's uh, appropriate to look into the question and my answer before I hand over, and I, I, I present to you the question and its solution, Omar, I will tell you, ivrit. Any person who speaks Hebrew, Yodea, Shashem, Elokim, Meshutaf, le The name Elokim, first and foremost, is equivocal. It, it shares with Eloah, godliness, divinity, Lamalachim to angels. Lamoshelim, to those who are ruling and governing. Manhige those are the ruling over, over countries. So anyone who's aware of this word, Elohim, and from Tanakh, and from Hebrew, is aware that this word is, uh, can be used in different contexts, in different ways. That's important already. So I haven't told you the question, I just want you to realize, and I already prefaced this, I told you about this. Unculus is is the commentary of unculus, the Targum, which is found on Page of many pumashim ala vashalom hivhir then a chon He he clarified very properly so. Shibidvarav viitem ke Elohim Yoder those words found in Bereshit Pere Pasuk Pasukhe, and you'll be like Elohim, <laughs> or better yet, Elohim Yodovara, Haqavanahin Mashmauta <laughs> Haharona. The meaning in those words, we'll, define, we'll, we'll explain the context of those words in a moment, is referring to the last of those three interpretations to the word Elohim. Hu Omer, Unculus translates, Utehon ke Rav revaya. He says, and you will be like Rav Ravrevaya Rav revaya refers to governors, refers to important people. All right, pause for a second, what's he doing over here? Well, again, he is furthering us in conversations about names that are mishutah. Somehow this chapter is going to, potentially, or maybe not, tap back into conversations he was having earlier, but uh, fundamentally, he starts off with a pasuk, v'item Elohim Yodei Etovara." Who said those words? Those are the words of the Nahash. Those are the words of the Nahash to Hada in the enticement as he entices her to eat from Etz Hadat. Says, v'item Elohim Yodei Etovara." Pause for a second and reflect about those words. You will be like Elohim Yodei Etovara. You might already, and maybe should be, if you're not familiar with this, be jolted before we read the question, which is going to be along the same line, not the same thing, you're already jolted. You'll be like God? Is that a truthful statement? And, and somehow there is some sort of yidi'ah that is born forth from that eating from the tree. Does that mean that we got some sort of godly feature to us? But furthermore, what's that? That we didn't have before? Uh, so that's what he's focused on. But he says, already, it doesn't mean anything about God. This is the word Elohim as a reference to governors. Does that have to do with the storyline? That's what, that's what Hava was enticed by? Okay, so he leaves that on the back burner. And once you understand that at the onset, unculus. Um, what's that? Uh, unculus. That's Unklus. That's Unklus in his commentary to the Torah. Unklus is one of the Tanaim. So We're going back a good, almost 2,000 years. Unklus hager. hager, indeed. <laughs> Um, you know, it's it's always significant that many of our great Torah Shabbat figures were gerim. Shemayah and Avtalion and Unculus Hagem. Yeah, all right. I guess in our community it's only Unculus. Uh, anyways, continues continues. Arambam. just very briefly. Let's read the question and we'll deal with the answer next time. And its repercussions and consequences. Once we preface that the word Elohim, or Elohim in this context, is meshutaf, it's equivocal, it can be used in several ways. Let's begin with the question. This was the question. It seems like the initial plan of God was that human beings not have intellect on a higher level. Now that, of course... However, he's going to define, explain that uh, negates everything he said in our first chapter. Right? That's 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 very clearly the link to our first chapter. First chapter was bitzalmenu kitmutena. Mutenu is a reference to higher level intellect. No, the claim is that if you read the simple meaning of the pesukim, we were never supposed to have that. Why were we never supposed to have that? Kasher himra himra et pihael garamlo. After all, after eating from the tree, what was the achievement? I say with quotation marks of human beings that we now knew tovara, which means before eating from it, we didn't know tovara. You're saying it's the same. Of course, of course. You're already on the answer, Ali. But at this point, I, yes, if. if we are assuming right now that yedi'at tovenra is higher-level intellect. You're right. The answer will be that it's not. But you blew that for us. Right now, you're supposed to be believing that's higher-level intellect. After all, it's the tree of Knowledge. Which means to say that we were created without that knowledge. And only after eating and going against God did we achieve that knowledge, which first and foremost portrays God in somewhat of a sadistic fashion. But secondly, and more importantly, we don't understand everything we wrote in chapter one. Because chapter one was all about the fact that Telem and Demut means that we had higher level consciousness and intellect. But we didn't until we fought against God, seemingly from the Pisukim. <laughs> Apple. that's a le- first of all not an apple all right. second of all that will be all oh, good that will be our last issue he's not going to address that at any point he will never address how they actually did that you get stuck in that people get stuck in that that's the mystery at the end of the whole thing uh, once he gives his answer so then how did they eat from it right but, which we will address after we read the, the Perek. but uh, in, in in the meantime he's really just addressing you know that that first those first two is, he says it's through the hamra'ah, through that uh, uh, that rebellious uh, the rebellion against God that we achieved that that describes our essence, does it not? The higher level intellect? We just spent the first period explaining that. And so the, his, his specific angle of the way the person posed this question to him was, it's a wonder. I mean, are cheaters always prospering? Is, is going against God, what gave us higher level intellect? We maximized our potential by defying him? Was this some sort of skewed direction for God in, in humanity? It's like suggesting someone defied, rebelled, went against God, and he was turned into a star in the heavens. Why would that be? he says this was essentially the question that was posed to me may have been phrased differently he says but that's essentially what it was alright so next time we'll have to read the fundamental answer of Harambam to very briefly summarize we introduced and Nebuchim talked about the background read through the first Perek which is very typical of Harambam with regards to dealing with words comparing them contrasting them with others was talking about of God in that context, in turn understanding something a lot about us as well, and then segueing into this question, which was already related on several levels to what he discussed in the first Patek, I'm leaving you a little bit with, well, some of us a cliffhanger, others of us, you know, alright, we know where this is going, but hopefully a cliffhanger of sorts with regards to what sort of statement is this, and it's not just the claim of the Nahash, which was a lie, because it appears as if that's actually what happens, they eat from the tree, and something does change, how strange All right, we'll return to this next time.